we always kind of ask, like, is this is this the election when climate change matters? And it does seem that this is the election when climate change matters. Welcome to Environmental Insights, a podcast from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. I'm your host, Rob Stavens, a professor here at the Harvard Kennedy School and director of the Environmental Economics Program and our project on climate agreements. Uh, With only a day or so left to the U.S. presidential and congressional elections on November 3rd, Uh, an election which people on all sides of the many issues, whether they're Republicans or Democrats, characterizes an exceptionally important election. Uh, Among the important policy areas that will be affected by the election is the area on which we focus in this podcast, namely environmental and energy policy, including, of course, climate change policy. So we realize that it would be wonderful service to our listeners, both in the United States and around the world, to talk with knowledgeable people about the election's implications, both before the election and afterward. And I thought for this purpose, rather than talking with someone from academia or government or industry, as we usually tend to do in this podcast, we should talk with people who make it their business to examine these key questions on a daily basis, indeed often on an hourly basis, and I'm referring, of course, to practicing journalists. So for this purpose, I've gone to two people who are real leaders in the realm of environmental reporting in a real-world political context. Two people whom I greatly respect and with whom I've had the pleasure of working from my perch in academia for many years. So our post-election discussion, which will be in a few weeks, will be with Coral Davenport of the New York Times. And for our before-election discussion today, I'm delighted to say that I'm joined by Lisa Friedman, reporter on the Climate Desk, also at the New York Times. Lisa, welcome to Environmental Insights. Rob, thank you so much for having me. So obviously, I'm very interested, and our listeners are, to hear your insights about climate change policy and the upcoming election But before we talk about that, let's go back to how you came to be where you are and where you've been. And and when I say go back, I do mean go way back. Uh, Where did you grow up? Uh, I grew up in New Jersey, North Jersey, about a half hour outside of New York. And um, I have been working for newspapers since I was 16 years old. So that started in high school, you're working for newspapers. Exactly. I... uh... I wanted to get a job at a record store. My mother wouldn't allow it. <laughs> she she wanted me to, to get an internship at a law firm or something dreadfully boring. And, um, you know, I mean, I came from a, a three newspaper a day family. My, my father always used to say things like, you know, reporters uncover more corruption than the FBI, which I love. And I, you know, I, I, I think it's true. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I, I went down to the North Jersey Herald and News, our local newspaper in Passaic County, New Jersey, and I got a job as an editorial assistant writing obituaries and fetching coffee and answering phones. And um, that was where my, my newspaper career and love of, of journalism was born. So was that part-time while you were in, your, while you were in school or was this after school and a full-time job? 
Oh, it was a little bit of everything. It was full-time mm-hmm. during the summers, part-time during the school year. Then in, in college, I, um, you know, I worked for, I worked briefly for the, the village voice and sort of mm-hmm. realized that where, you know, my sort of natural tendencies and, and, you know, sort of, um, passion in journalism lies sort of not in, uh, presenting my own opinion, but finding out what other people think and what other people are doing. And, um, you know, I worked, uh, uh, you know, after college, I, I, I really backed into environmental reporting. I did, I never started out as an environmental reporter. I, uh, after college got a job at the Las Vegas review journal, um, as uh, again, as an intern covering mm-hmm. the police beat and, you know, wanted to be Edna Buchanan and cover, you know, cover crime for the rest of my life. I, right. uh, uh, I, you know, went to Bakersfield and started a prison, prison beat, um, um, and, you know, eventually came to DC to cover Congress and, um, you know, I was I was climbing the ladder of uh, of newspapers, and the rungs fell out in two thousand eight and two thousand seven eight, and I kept getting laid mm-hmm. off and landed completely by accident at Climate Wire, um, a, a fantastic news uh, daily news outlet focused on energy and environment policy. Um, which is where we first met, certainly. Which is where we first met, right? In in Poznan, I think. I think that's right. I think that's right. So uh, at the Los Angeles Daily News, you were not doing climate or even environment. Climate Wire was your first move into this realm. Is that right? That's right. I mean, so yes, like I said, I mean, I worked for local papers um, and then I got a job as the, um, well, they, well, they called me bureau chief of the mm-hmm. Oakland Tribune. <laughs> Uh, but there was, there was nobody else in the bureau. I was chief of me. Um, and, uh, right. <laughs> sometimes I'd bring my dog into work and then I was chief of him. Right. Um, uh, Oakland Tribune in their Washington bureau for a few years and, and got laid off, uh, was hired by the LA daily news, a sister paper also covering Congress. So I covered the California delegation. I did cover some climate stories, in that mix, but it was really, you know, when, when you're a regional reporter, you are covering everything with uh, an, an eye toward what it means for your part of the country, um, whether sure. it's, sure. you know, the war in Iraq or changes to the alternative minimum tax, you know. Um, and then I got laid off from, <laughs> from the LA Daily News, and there was an opening at Climate Wire, um, and I mean, I'll tell you, my first thought was, gosh, covering just one subject, I mean, that could be really boring. Right. Yeah, I could understand <laughs> and, that reaction, sure. Right? Yeah. And, uh, you know, I mean, it took me about, you know, and I, I, I kind of thought, well, maybe I'll, maybe I'll, I'll work at, at, you know, in this place until newspapers rebound. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. And it took me about 20 seconds working in, you know, at Climate Wire and, and getting to really understand this issue to realize this is the best and most important beat 
there is, that this is a beat about absolutely everything. And, um, you know, it it really just changed the entire trajectory of of my career. So so speaking of that beat and turning to the election, um, in most national elections in the U.S. since the beginning of uh, meaningful environmental policy in the U.S., which I would peg as approximately 1970 or so in terms of federal environmental policy, environment has always been at most a second tier, if not a third tier tier issue for voters. Um, But it seems to be different this time, at least among some voters. Do you sense that or am I off base here? No, I mean, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, well, first of all, just to, to close the loop on on career, you know, I came to the Times, um, you know, sh- shortly after President Trump was elected. But in every election that I have covered, both presidential and, you know, midterms, um, since I've been focused on climate change about, you know, 10 or 12 years now, um, we always kind of ask, like, is this... <laughs> Is this the election when climate change matters? And it does seem that this is the election when climate change matters. Um, Now, look, I think there's two parts to this, right? There's the amount of attention that climate change is getting in the election, um, which is undeniably bigger and more substantive than it has ever been before. And then there's the question of whether, to what extent this is an issue that people vote on. Right. I mean, when when you go to the polls, mm-hmm. how high is climate change um, or or other right. energy issues? Um, but to the first point, you know, I mean, yes. I mean, I think we I have never seen an election cycle like this where climate change is consistently in ranks in the top issues among Democrats. And, you know, I mean, even even think that I mean, remember we had a seven hours on CNN of mostly thoughtful policy debate on climate change, which my goodness, like even two years ago, if you had told me that there would be, you know, like, yes, there were some silly questions about straws and hamburgers, but it was, you know, you also had all of the democratic nominees discussing very in-depth policy on managed retreat and the role that nuclear energy should or shouldn't play. And, you know, had you told me that this would be on a major news network, um, you know, and, and we would have that kind of substantive policy discussion on climate change, I would not have believed you. Um, and I wonder, is this increased attention from the news media to climate change and its relationship in the context of the election. Is it due to increased broad concern among the population on climate change? Is it due to a new crop of young voters who are entering the electorate uh, for the first time? Is it a response to Trump? Because so much of this seems to really be about Trump, both the voters on one side and the voters on the other side. Or is there something else that's going on? No, I mean, it's a great question. And, you know, I think it's it's all of those things. I, you know, I recently did a story looking at what it is that has caused, you know, climate change to really sort of claim so much attention. Mm-hmm. And there is no doubt that, um, you know, the fact that there is one candidate who 
calls climate change a hoax and has been openly antagonistic to climate science and has, you know, moved to roll back climate regulations, uh, pit against a candidate who calls climate change an existential threat, um, you know, makes this a, a more salient issue to cover. You know, I talked to folks from the Romney campaign and the, the McCain campaign who, you know, if you recall, I mean, both, um, you know, McCain to a, to a far greater extent, perhaps, but both, you know, Obama and McCain agreed that climate change was happening and needed to be addressed and had, you know, in some cases, similar proposals for dealing with it. And both said, look, you know, in the campaign, not only was there no urgency to uh, have a platform, have a climate change platform, or, or there was no real pressure to even discuss it because it wasn't a point of differentiation. It didn't help voters decide um, who to vote for. So, yes, there is that. But there's also, you know, the extreme weather events, the wildfires, the floods, um, you know, are also just having an undeniable effect in making this a front and center issue for people. And like right. you say, I mean, the, the youth right. movement, the advocacy movement around climate change um, has been bigger mm -hmm. than ever, you know, the, the climate strikes, um, the, the sunrise movement, I mean, have has, has brought this to a level of attention, again, that I, I just don't think it's ever really had before. So let's think about what the effects of the election could be on the path of climate change policy over the next four years. And let, let's start by focusing exclusively on U.S. domestic climate change policy, and then later we can talk about in the international domain with the Paris Agreement and the like. And in addressing that, um, why don't we assume that the Democrats hold the House and then you can tell us what you think happens with climate change policy, given who's elected, and with either scenario about the Senate, either at flipping to Democrats or at remaining in Republican hands. What are your thoughts? Are you assuming here a Biden win? No, I want you to take it either way. Uh, I mean, I, I assume the answer, the answer is relatively brief with a Trump win, we, but maybe it's not. Maybe there are some new things that will happen. Yeah, I mean, on a, if if it, if President Trump wins, um, you know, I think there's there's a couple things that are going to happen. I mean, look, there's not a lot left to deregulate, right? Uh, President Trump has has uh, rolled back virtually every regulation that had existed to draw down emissions from power plants, from automobile tailpipe emissions, from the oil and gas sector. Um, a lot of those are in the courts and that will be, you know, how those play out will be a huge second term issue if there is a second term for President Trump. Um, and I, I also think in a second term you will see, let me try to unwonkify this, but one of the things that th this administration has done that hasn't gotten, I think, as much attention is they have worked to not just roll back regulations, but to roll back the ability to create new regulations. And I think that is something mm -hmm. that we'll see a lot more of. There's a um, uh, regulation right now that is still, we're still waiting for a final version of to restrict the type of science that the EPA can, can refer to when it creates new mm -hmm. regulations. There's right. um, cost-benefit 
you know, um, regulations. I think we'll, we'll, we'll see other things like that um, really sort of tightening the reins on the ability of any future democratic administration um, to enact air and water and climate regulations. Which raises the importance then of statutory approaches, because unlike what the Obama administration did when it failed with the statutory approach in the Senate from Waxman-Markey, was that obviously it went to a regulatory approach, but with this new 6-3 conservative majority in the Supreme Court, and possibly even uh, overturning the Chevron ruling, uh, it could be that it would be much more difficult for the agencies to have the discretion, I think that's what you're suggesting, of going beyond what a statute says in very literal terms. Is that right? Exactly, exactly. And, and the last thing that I would, I would note on, in a second-term uh, Trump administration um, is a, a piece I recently did with my colleague Chris Flavel um, looking at changes to NOAA. Now, NOAA... Um, is an agency that has flown mostly under the radar um, th- these past few years, but this it, they are one of the lead agencies that produces the National Climate Assessment, a congressionally mandated report that comes out every four years um, that uh, you know assesses the 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 risks to the United States from climate change, um, and this uh, the Trump administration recently installed two people in high-level positions who openly question um, the science of climate change and have been, you know, at least one of them has been, and, uh, you know, knowledgeable people around these folks have, have said that the goal here in a second term is to inject doubt into the national climate assessment about both the extent of warming and the implications. So why does that matter? It's a big report that sits on, you know, sits on a desk every four years. Um, but to have, you know, it's it's a it's actually a critically important report because if you know to have a report with the imprimatur of the United States government that questions climate change would. Um, could be used in court, uh, it can, and, and you know, most importantly, it could be used to challenge the legal and scientific foundation known as the endangerment finding. For your, for your listeners, again, sorry to, to nerd out, but of the the foundation for um, regulating greenhouse gas emissions in the first place. Uh, you're not nerding out. Uh, I, I love it when you talk like that, Lisa. It's you know. <laughs> Great from my perspective. Um, So let me ask you then, to make our listeners feel good, let's speculate. I'd ask you now to speculate on what will we see if Mr. Biden is the next president. And to make it specific, let's assume the Democrats hold the House. For the moment, why don't we even assume that the Democrats take control of the Senate, but without a filibuster-proof majority? Um, what would you anticipate would happen? This is this is a real sort of choose your own adventure um, scenario, right? I mean, um, and and again, I, you know, I, I apologize for keep referring to to the Times, but we we do have a tremendous, you know, huge climate team at the Times, which which I think we're all really proud of, and and my colleague yes. Coral Davenport 
who you're going to be speaking with after the election, just did a great piece looking at like how, you know, what it would take for Biden's climate plan to become a reality. Um, now, just to explain, so President, um, Vice President Biden has pledged uh, $2 trillion over four years to boost clean energy, uh, uh, electric automobiles, uh, energy-efficient buildings. Um, he has is, he is, uh, called for f eliminating fossil fuel emissions from the power sector by, by 2035. Um, so what is that, you know, that is going to be a difficult sell to get through the Senate in any configuration. Um, mm -hmm. There's a couple scenarios. Um, you know, one, I, I would say that it seems to us from having spoken with a lot of folks in and around Biden's camp um, is that they are thinking about this very differently than uh, the thinking that surrounded the 2000, the Waxman-Markey effort in 2009 to pass a cap-and-trade bill. I right. mean, in that, you know, when, when President Obama was, was elected, first came the Recovery Act. And yes, there was lots of, you know, there was a lot of money in there for, for clean energy, but it was first the Recovery Act, then, you know, then healthcare. And then by the time, you know, Congress got around to, to dealing with climate change, uh, you know, some can, can quibble with my characterization here, but I think there was uh, wasn't a lot of political capital left to, to get that over the finish line in the Senate. Um, I think that's absolutely right. Yeah. Okay, so here they're really thinking. They really seem to be thinking about embedding climate change in everything. First and foremost, in any coronavirus economic recovery stimulus. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, and that's an area, you know, where, where Mr. Biden has um, a lot of experience. You know, he was he was essentially responsible for including about 90 billion in clean energy spending into the American Recovery and, and Reinvestment Act. So what happens if those spending measures don't get enough Republican support? Um, my my colleague, Coral laid this out in a, in a story recently where she interviewed Chuck Schumer, now the minority leader, um, who said openly that Democrats, you know, will use a, a budgetary procedure, a fast-tracking procedure known as budget, budget reconciliation um, to push through climate spending and tax policy if, if they need to. Um, so we'll see, you know, if that, if that is the route that winds up, that, that they wind up taking. Yes, I, I heard that suggested a couple of days ago to Lisa Murkowski, and of course she bridled at the notion, although she's much more supportive of climate policy than almost all of her Republican colleagues, but um, she bridled at the notion of using budget reconciliation. Although at least there's a good connection. If there was a carbon price, then it actually is a, a budgetary issue. Exactly. And, you know, I mean, it has been, you know, President Trump has used it. It's not, it's not an unheard of, yes. um, you know, um, procedure. Um, uh, you know, what, what, you know, we've been told by, by sources on the Hill is that, you know, this probably isn't the, the, you know, that they will make efforts to do things, um, you know, in a bipartisan way first, but they do have right. this in their back pocket. If, you know, 
um, if there is no appetite among Republicans for dealing with climate change. Now, one day, Lisa, after the uh, presidential election, the United States will officially withdraw from the Paris Agreement unless the president of the administration has a sudden change of heart and tries to reverse itself. Um, if Vice President uh, Biden becomes president uh, in January, is inaugurated, um, what will happen with regards to the Paris Agreement? So technically, as you say, you know, the day after the election, we will be out of the Paris Agreement. Um, you know, President Trump, uh, his administration has already sent, you know, a year ago, the letter mm -hmm. that set the clock ticking, um, you know, at, at his earliest, the earliest date that he was able to, he did. Um, and so it's an awkward time anyway, because because of the coronavirus, you know, there is not going to be a UN climate meeting in December as there normally would be. So we're not going to have uh, as as sort of, I guess you'd say, as visible a gap as we would if this was a, you know, normal, non-pandemic time. Um, but, you know, if Biden is elected, I mean, I think you can expect to see a couple things. I think you can expect some messaging very early on um, to the international community that, you know, um, to remind them that, you know, his, uh, you know, throughout his campaign, he has pledged that getting back into the Paris Agreement will be, you know, a, a day one, um, you know, promise. Um, and then comes the, the question of, of thinking, I think, among his transition team about what U.S. re-entry into the Paris Agreement looks like, right? Because as, you know, as I'm sure you've been giving this a lot of thought too, and getting back into Paris is the easy part. Right. Specifying a nationally determined contribution is the significant question. I mean, and here's where I'd also love to ask you, Rob, if if I could, can I ask you a question? Oh, sure. Normally, when you and I talk, that's the way it works. Today is the exception. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so uncomfortable being on this side of the... But I, I'd love to get your thoughts on, you know, what kind of hurdles the U.S. will, will face in restoring trust in, you know, the other countries' trust. I mean, countries have seen this movie now twice, right, where the United States not only backs out of an international climate agreement, but pushes other countries toward a certain kind of architecture. And then <laughs> in a, you know, elects a Republican who, you know, who, who pulls us out of, of a, a, a global agreement, first Kyoto and now Paris. Um, yeah. What, you know, why should other countries trust us when we say we're back. So, you know, so you're right. There is a history of it. The Kyoto Protocol had Article 17 trading mechanism because of the United States. And then, of course, we never ratified the Kyoto uh, Protocol. Similarly, with the Paris Agreement, President Obama was uh, played a very important role in that agreement and its structure of this hybrid so that it could get through the U.S. with ratification without the U.S., uh, Senate, and now the U.S. drops out. My reaction, Lisa, to your question is that uh, our allies, particularly the Europeans, are going to be so thrilled 
if Mr. Biden was elected, namely because Mr. Trump is not elected, principally because of moving forward with NATO as being a significant mechanism in the world. Secondly, because of international trade and not inspiring trade wars with the European Union. And then the question is, what about China? Because this has been, that relationship, I don't know if it's been poisoned, but it's certainly been damaged tremendously in lots of spheres on defense, on trade, and on climate change. My take is still that Despite all of that, and despite the fact that there has been this in and out pattern over time, as you've identified, is that the countries will be delighted to work with the United States again. Maybe I'm being naive. I guess we'll see, right? Yeah, um, we'll see. But that's what I'm going to be looking for as, as you know, if, if it's a yes. Biden um, presidency. Um, that's one of the questions that's heavily on my on my mind. So I want to take us... Let me take us beyond the election and even thinking further forward. Uh, and that, and it's the following, is that, you know, increasing political polarization in the United States has changed what was once a bipartisan issue, and I mean environment and energy broadly, into a fiercely partisan one. As you well know, and as we've talked about um, the path-breaking Clean Air Act amendments in 1990 passed the Senate with support from 91% of Democrats and 87% of Republicans. And it was similar in the House. Fast forward to the Waxman-Markey bill in 2009, passed the House with 83% of Democrats and 4% of Republicans. So do you see, Lisa, this kind of, this dramatic polarization on climate change and other environmental issues for that matter. Do you see that as changing going forward or is this the new reality for, you know, a decade ahead? It's it's a great question. It's hard to say. I mean, look, we have really seen, um, you know, in the past year, um, uh, cons- Republican members of Congress uh, sort of come to the table in some ways on climate change, right? You have um, Kevin McCarthy, a uh, mm-hmm. House Minority Leader, um, coming forward with a package of initiatives. You saw that House Republicans purposely put um, Congressman Graves, who is not a climate denier, um, you know, who does acknowledge the science and, and the urgency of dealing with climate change, on the Select Committee on on uh, on climate change. Mm-hmm. Um, even President Trump, you know, made a sort of nod <laughs> to climate change with his with by by getting involved in, in the Trillion Tree right. initiative. Um, I'd say the thing that you know this is that this doesn't directly answer your polarization question, but I mean one thing that is really notable about all of the efforts that Republicans are engaged in, whether it's trees or carbon capture or um, nuclear energy, is that there seems to be um, a consensus on the conservative side that uh, one can address climate change without reducing fossil fuels, um, or that which is something that you know scientists have not backed up. Um, you know, and those that do acknowledge that uh, there needs to be a, a you know, a, a serious reduction in fossil fuels, um, you know, essentially argue that more market forces will take care of that. Mm-hmm. 
So there's there really is a very wide gulf still. I do think that you are going to see um, sort of less argumentation around the science. I think, you know, with President Trump in office, this has been in some ways uh, like the golden era for climate deniers. Um, you know, I don't think that they're, you know, and, and, and you know, he has brought climate deniers into prominent positions in the White House, um, et cetera. I mean, this is no secret. Um, um, but I do think that broadly speaking, the Republican Party is ready to move on from the debate around the science. Um, and if President Trump is not given a second term, then we'll see a lot more fights over solutions than we will over whether or not this is happening. Well, that even that is somewhat uh, encouraging. Let me let me finish up by asking you um, one other question. I'm I'm really curious to know what's your personal reaction to a change that has taken place, at least in my view, and that are these youth movements of climate activism, both in Europe and in the United States. What what's your reaction to those? I think it's terrific. I mean, I think it has brought so much energy, um, both to the beat and to the issue. Um, I think it has really, you know, I think a lot of the youth activists have really challenged those of us who have been covering the issue, you know, just as they have challenged sort of the folks who were the youth activists when I started covering climate change, right. um, right. you know, who have really challenged, um, you know, the the sort of conventional wisdom among advocacy have also been, you know, been very um, forthright in challenging journalists. And I think, you know, and, and our assumptions and what we write about and how. And I think all of those are really positive things. Um so, you know, I'm, I've been glad to see it. And, um, you know, I, I think that, uh, I think that, that seeing, you know, young people deeply engaged on, on this issue has been really powerful. Yeah, I agree with you completely. And it's wonderful to conclude on a, on a positive note after everything we've been discussing. So thank you very much, Lisa, for taking time to join us today. Thank you so much for having me, Rob. It's great to be with you. So thanks again to our guest today, Lisa Friedman, reporter on the Climate Desk at the New York Times. Please join us for the next episode of Environmental Insights, Conversations on Policy and Practice from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. I'm your host, Rob Stavins. Thanks for listening. Environmental Insights is a production from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. For more information on our research, events, and programming, visit our website, www.heap.hks.harvard.edu.